paused, akin to turning an aircraft carrier on a dime, that he would treat cast and crew to extravagant gifts. All of a sudden, there'd be a sushi chef at lunch, one crew member remembered, or we'd all give massages. It had come to be understood by all involved as part of the price of doing business, the trade-off for getting the remarkably intense, fully inhabited Tony Soprano that Gandolfini offered. So when the actor failed to show up for a 6 p.m. call at Westchester County Airport to shoot the final appearance of the character Furio Junta, a night shoot involving a helicopter, few panicked. It was an annoyance, but it wasn't cause for concern, said Terrence Winter, the writer-producer on set that night. You know, it's just money. I mean, it was a ton of money. We shut down a fucking airport. Nobody was particularly sad to go home at 9.30 on a Friday night. Over the next 12 hours, it would become clear that this time was different. This time, Gandolfini was just gone. The operation that came to a halt that evening was a massive one. The Sopranos had spread out to occupy most of two floors of Silver Cup Studios, a steel-and-brick one-time bread factory at the foot of the Queensboro Bridge in Long Island City, Queens. Downstairs, the production filmed on four of Silver Cup's huge stages, including the ominously named Stage X, on which sat an endlessly reconfigurable, almost life-size model of the Soprano family's New Jersey McMansion. The famous view of the family's backyard, brick patio and swimming pool, practically synonymous with suburban ennui, lay rolled up on an enormous translucent polyurethane curtain that could be wheeled behind the Arasat's kitchen windows and backlit when needed. A small army, in excess of 200 people, was employed in fabricating such details, which added up to as rich and fleshed out a universe as had ever existed on TV. Carpenters, electricians, painters, seamstresses, drivers, accountants, cameramen, location scouts, caterers, writers, makeup artists, audio engineers, prop masters, set dressers, scenic designers, production assistants of every stripe. Out in Los Angeles, a whole other team of post-production crew, editors, mixers, color correctionists, music supervisors, was stationed. Dailies were shuttled back and forth between the coasts under a fake company name, Big Box Productions, to foil spies anxious to spoil feverishly anticipated plot points. What had started three years earlier as an oddball what-do-we-have-to-lose experiment for a network still best known for rerunning Hollywood movies had become a huge bureaucratic institution. More than that, to be at Silver Cup at that moment was to stand at the center of a television revolution. Although the change had its roots in a wave of quality network TV begun two decades before, it had started in earnest five years earlier, when the pay subscription network HBO began turning its attention to producing original hour-long dramas. By the start of 2002, with Gandolfini at large, the medium had been transformed. Soon the dial would begin to fill with Tony Sopranos. Within three months, a bald, stocky, flawed but charismatic boss, this time of a band of rogue cops instead of mafiosi, would make his first appearance— on FX's The Shield. Mere months after that, on The Wire, viewers would be introduced to a collection of Baltimore citizens that included an alcoholic, narcissistic police officer, a ruthless drug lord, and a gay, homicidal stick-up boy. HBO had already followed the success of The Sopranos with Six Feet Under, a series about a family-run funeral home filled with characters that were perhaps less sociopathic than these other cable denizens, but could be equally unlikable. In the wings lurked such creatures as Deadwood's Al Swearingen, 
as cretinous a character as would ever appear on television, much less in the role of protagonist, and rescue me is Tommy Gavin, an alcoholic, self-destructive firefighter grappling poorly with the ghosts of 9-11. Andrew Schneider, who wrote for The Sopranos in its final season, had cut his teeth writing for TV's version of The Incredible Hulk, in which each episode, by rule, featured at least two instances of mild-mannered, regretful David Banner hulking out and morphing into a giant, senseless green id. This would turn out to be good preparation for writing a serialized cable drama twenty years later. These were characters whom conventional wisdom had once insisted Americans would never allow into their living rooms, unhappy, morally compromised, complicated, deeply human. They played a seductive game with the viewer, daring them to emotionally invest in, even root for, even love, a gamut of criminals whose offenses would come to include everything.